Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah. Thanks for joining us as we are continuing our series known as Keeping It Real as we walk through the letter known as Philemon. Paul the Apostle writes a letter to a fellow servant of the Lord named Philemon about a mutual relationship that both Paul and Philemon have with a man named Onesimus. So I have a real quick request. If you came prepared to take notes, we recommend it because at the end of the service, there will be a test. All right? I'm just letting you guys know. All right? So if you take notes, I'd encourage you to do that starting now. Onesimus was a slave. He was a bondservant. He had run away from Philemon, who was his master. And last week, we spoke a little bit about the fact that this probably was not slavery as we know it in the 19th century, but more of a self-indentured enslavement to pay off a debt. Paul, knowing that Onesimus has ran away and could actually, by law, be in serious trouble and unfortunately even been physically harmed through that law, has written a letter to Philemon, a fellow brother and servant in the faith, about Onesimus who has ran away. But also, while Onesimus had ran away, in that time he had become a follower of Jesus Christ, and Paul is asking for Onesimus' debt to be forgiven, not just what he owes Philemon, which might be money or service, but to forgive him and grant him his freedom. This is a big ask. This is pretty culturally scandalous if you think about it. But Paul, who doesn't point to his, his own authority, he points to Philemon's commitment to Christ, understands that the gospel changes people, including Philemon and Onesimus. So I have a question for you guys, and I want you to think about this. This might be on the test. What is it about the gospel that draws you to God? What about the good message of grace? What about the good news that draws you to God? Like, we all might emphasize something a little bit different, but what is it about the gospel that first wooed you to God and continues to bring you back to affection for your God? I ask that because I want us to be thinking today, as we walk through this passage, I want us to be allowing the goodness of the gospel of grace to be what is on our minds as we study this letter. Where Paul is going to ask for Onesimus' freedom, I want us as a community to sit with the beauty and the power of the gospel message that not only first drew us to love Jesus for what he had done, but continues to do so through the work of the Holy Spirit. So before we jump into the text that we're going to study today, let's read the passage that we unpacked last week, starting in verse 12. Paul writes to Philemon, and he says, I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So now, with that in mind, what I just read, with the beginning of Paul's ask to Philemon regarding this mutual brother in the faith, we're going to keep reading. So verse 17, here's what it says. So if you consider me a partner, Paul says, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Paul is continuing this theme of connecting both he and Onesimus because of their shared commitment to Christ. If you consider me a partner, a co-laborer, a partaker with, he directly associates himself with Onesimus. And the word that can be used here is attributed as the same word we know as kononia, 
We tend to call it fellowship. It is a partnering in the gospel. So how do we associate with one another like this in the year 2021? Well, it's harder now. There's so many things that polarize and create disunity in 2021 like no other. Let me give some simple ones. Political divides, racial divides, just opinionated divides. And yet with all the division, we as followers of Jesus have something in common that no other faith, no other religion, no other political party, no other organization has. It is simply this, love expressed through the forgiveness of sins by grace. That's what we have that no one else has. So why should we fellowship with other believers? Why should we partner in the gospel? Well, because that's a marker. That's an example. That's the manifestation of the proclamation of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven by the same God and through the same grace. Anyone who sits in here today saying that Jesus is your Lord, you've been saved by the same message as someone else who claims the same. And Jesus puts it this way when he is speaking about how others will know that we are partners in the faith. He says it this, like this in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is there nuance? Sure. Does everyone who says that they're a Christian actually a Christian? Of course not. But our responsibility is not to be the theology police unless you're guarding the sanctity of the truth as an elder within the church context of leadership. Our responsibility as followers of Christ is to love others who share in the grace of God received by faith in Jesus Christ. This is how people will know that you are His disciples. This is how the work of God in the people of God is put on display. God chooses to use the weak to confound the wise. And I believe He is in the business of showing off His grace in people that don't deserve it, like you and me. If we could earn it, we wouldn't need Him. But we can't, so we do, and He gets glory in all of us. Did you keep up with what I just said? If we could earn it, we wouldn't need Him, but we can't, so we do, and He gets the glory in all of us. That is what makes us who have trusted Christ partners. We are co-laborers and partakers together in grace. So Paul, who says that he and Philemon are partners, he requests that Philemon welcomes Onesimus the way that he'd welcome Paul. This could be considered lowering Paul's rank by stating that he and Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, were the same. But Paul is making clear that ranks are not what the kingdom of God is all about. In the world, we attempt to build our resume, don't we? You guys can talk back. Yeah. In the world, we want to get ahead. In the world, we want to be famous for the prestige and the power that comes along with the influence. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus is our resume. It's just Him. Our getting ahead is about laying down our life. In the kingdom, the fame we pursue is not for our name, it's for Jesus' name alone. There's a story that's told in Mark chapter 10. Mark writes this, starting in verse 35, he says it this way, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, being Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Wow. You don't know what you were asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Wow. 
Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Say that really fast. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To serve for some is beneath them. Because we think in a, with a worldly lens that says that those who are served are the best. They're the ones that are getting ahead. For years, I worked under a pastor. Well, it wasn't four years, but years ago. I worked under a pastor who I still consider one of my pastors. And what I noticed about him was that even though he was the lead pastor of this church, even though God had grown the church through him, even though he would go on to be given opportunities to lead an association of thousands of churches, if he saw something that needed to be done, he'd roll up his sleeves and he'd do it. Not with the sense of, watch me do this lowly thing, but with an understanding that he was a servant of the Lord Jesus and of the church of the living God. I learned to pick up trash around the church campus because he would. I watched him park as far away from the church building as possible, even though he was usually the first one there. And it wasn't necessarily these things that made him humble. It was that he didn't see himself as more important than everyone else. And so he made a point to serve those that were around him. I strive to be like him. I strive to even more be like Jesus, who took off his royal robe to come and be about his father's business and not to be served, but to serve a world that would primarily reject him. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, church. And for some, that becomes a truth that's just too hard to stomach. We bring our worldview into our Christianity, and we get offended when the Word of God contradicts our worldly view. I probably said over and over and over and over and over again that a prideful Christian is an oxymoron, which stinks because I know how prideful I've been, and I have an idea of how prideful I continue to be. But I have a God that doesn't look at my deeds or my disobedience and grade on a curve. Hear me and know this. He gives us Jesus' grade every time. Because as followers of Jesus, we are grafted into him and his perfect record gifted to us. So humility, or as I named the sermon, kingdom pridelessness. And for you guys that teach, you're like, that's not a word. I know but you can get the gist of what that means, can't you? Pridelessness. It's a distaste for exaltation of oneself. But a pointing back to Jesus is really what the Holy Spirit has equipped Paul and Onesimus and Philemon and any of us who have bowed a knee to Jesus because that's what the Spirit does in us. We stop exalting ourselves and we start to exalt Jesus. I don't think we ought to attempt to be more humble. I'm going to be humble today. I don't think that's how this works. I think that's a great way to disqualify yourself from humility. Everyone, look at me. I'm being humble. No. But if we think less of ourselves and we think unto our Savior, humility comes from focusing on whose we are rather than what we can do. Verse 18. 
If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, Paul says, charge it to me. This statement makes me think two ways about what is probably happening, happening here with Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Everyone agrees upon that. And that's definitely assumed by most that he stole money from Philemon or that he was self-indentured, meant that perhaps that he had not worked off the debt that Philemon had paid off for him, so he owed Philemon a time of service before they were squared away. Either, I believe, could be true. I tend to lean towards the latter, the second one, that he had ran away prior to his debt being worked off, but the former also could be true. But nevertheless, Paul is standing in the gap for Onesimus. He's asking that whatever Onesimus owes Philemon, that it be charged to Paul. Does anyone see the gospel in that? This is one of the most gospel statements I think we see in this letter, and honestly, in the entire Bible. Paul is saying that he takes upon himself the debt that Onesimus owes. This is what that stands for. This is what Jesus did for us. He doesn't go, hey, Daddy, would you let them out of their sin debt? Jesus pays for our debt with his own life. Verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my very own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention you owe me your very self. Boom. Paul makes known that he does not have a scribe or someone else writing this out for him, but this is directly from him. Paul's actual hand and mind, but also that this was something that Paul is writing to make clear that he will be the one indebted for Onesimus' debt. By him writing with his own hand, he legally assumes the debt if accepted by Philemon. And this offer models what Christ has done for us, but on a far greater scale. I hope that I, and I hope that you, never get sick of what is known as the great exchange. This is a theological term which signifies that God got what we deserve while we received what Jesus deserves. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says it this way. This is a tattoo verse, y'all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me, let me go off script for a second. That's why we gather, because Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, because Jesus came and took on the debt that we deserve to pay. Jesus did it, we didn't. And that's what Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And it's just this one verse, but then it points back to what Paul said to Philemon. And it points to the reality that Jesus came and took upon what we deserve to pay. All we have to contribute to our salvation is the need in order to be saved, which is sin. Jonathan Edwards, the theologian, says it better than me. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Wow. But what God requires and what we need is this term known as righteousness, which means that we would have right standing before God. So in Jesus, God trades our sin. I'll, I'll, make, I'll make my sin my iPhone, I guess. Sorry, those who work at Apple. God trades our sin for Jesus' righteousness so we could be declared not guilty. That's the crux of the gospel. That's the reality that we can have righteousness because God gave it to us. I wanted to come up with an illustration better than an iPhone and a Bible that makes this really clear. And honestly, the ones that I saw, the ones that I saw other people come up with, they were really cheesy. 
So I decided not to come up with one. And without meaning to, a lot of the ones that I read, they illustrated a cleaning up of oneself or an outward appearance change rather than an interior change that not everyone can see just by looking. But here's what happens. What Paul says to Philemon is really the best example of what we have that illustrates what this means. It might have been a financial debt, but Paul is willing to absorb that himself. Jesus takes the debt that you and I have incurred by our sinful nature, our rejection of God's lordship and commands. We have a debt so expensive that there is nothing we can do to pay it back but Jesus. Jesus doesn't just write a letter to offer the option for our debt to be paid. Jesus, while we were still sinners, while there was nothing we could do, Jesus goes to the cross and he sees yours and my debt and he knows because of his perfect record, because of his sinlessness, he is rich enough to pay for all of our debts, which aren't economic, but they're immoral actions against a holy and perfect God. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, Paul says, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. That sounds super Christian-y, doesn't it? Paul's super Christian-y because he loves Jesus. And Paul is referring to their relationship with Christ and with one another. He asked that he would share in the benefit or get to see faith in action by doing what Philemon ought to do, by allowing this request of Paul to be fulfilled. Benefit is a play on words. All right, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Paul's really punny in this letter. The word resembles the word for usefulness. Benefit resembles the word for usefulness, which is the word onesimus. This is not about a benefit for Paul, but how the kingdom of God benefits through this circumstance. Paul knows that they would be mutually encouraged, that a difference would be made, that God's glory would be put on display by Philemon accepting Paul's request. Talk about a gospel opportunity. If Philemon does this to explain why to others why he freed the slave, because he shares in the gospel of Jesus with Onesimus and Paul, his fellow brother, who has asked him to do this, not just for Paul, not just for Onesimus, but for Christ's sake. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What, what can you do at that point? I mean, Wow. I just know you're going to do more than I asked. I'm going to talk like that to you guys now. Hey, you guys want to serve? I know you'll do more than I'll ask. <laughs> but Paul throughout this letter doesn't tell Philemon what to do, but he asks in accordance with the understanding that the gospel has changed Philemon and his priorities. It can be read pretty passive-aggressively, can it? Well, here, let me give you some examples. Verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now, I don't think Paul has my tone. But it's easy to see how these statements could sound like guilt trips or passive-aggressive attempts to get Philemon to do what Paul thinks he ought to do. But I do think it's more than that. In Christ, we have a biblical world view. We have a Lord above us who calls us to more than what the world asks of us. The point is not ourselves or of our general well-being, but it's about Christ's exaltation and others' well-being. 
So Paul is confident in Philemon because he knows that he will be led by the same spirit that Paul is led by and will do even more than what Paul is asking in the circumstance. So what do you do when people who claim the same Christ as you let you down? Has this ever happened or has this just happened to pastors? Okay, your laughing tells me it happens. What do you do when they don't seem to be following the same Word of God that you think you're following? Do you make sure you have nothing to do with them? That's a very, very, very last resort. Do you ignore it and hope that they'll do better next time? That's passive and not really caring for the person. Do you attempt to go to that person and speak truth and love, and with the hope that they may understand what you mean, you guys perfectly and biblically work it out? The Neathlings made it holy to actually grab a book from the pew, so I'm going to ask you to actually grab the Bible from the pew. And for those of you who are not big on NIV, tough. NIV. Matthew 18. In fact, I'll be this nice, page 952, if you grab the Bible in front of you. Because I didn't put these verses in the sermon, and I did that on purpose, because I want us to actually go through a Bible together. Matthew 18. I don't know what page it is on your phone. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, All of the Bible is infallible as it was originally written, but just to be really clear, Jesus said this. Some treat this passage as a weapon, where we feel we must, Matthew 18, any and everyone around us who isn't perfect in our eyes, which is a great misuse of this passage. Others aren't willing to do it because they assume that it's the pastor or the elder's jobs, and all the pastors and elders said, "Uh uh-uh. But the whole point about this situation was to help people see their fault in sin and be able to repent and not only go back to where they were, but to be stronger through a real, real biblical conversation that ought to bring light to where and where, when and where they were off. Some of the hardest conversations I've had with people, but some of the conversations that I will remember through this lifetime is where people have called me out. And we've walked through and talked, and the Lord through His Word has shown me where I was off. And if that happens to me, my guess is that should happen to you as well. In 2021, Matthew 18 doesn't seem to work in the sense that people usually don't tend to see their fault. They don't see the fact that maybe they ought to repent. They tend to justify themselves and treat their community like a class in school that they can just transfer from and go into another class with other students to make new friends. But church, the kingdom of God isn't about acquaintances and friends. The kingdom of God is about the family of God. And we ought to be willing to try to help other believers not to treat church community like a throwaway disposable camera where we use it for a little while and then move on when it's done when we've used what we've wanted it for. I was going to bring a disposable camera, but I don't have one. So I know that analogy only works for half the room. Church, the last many months and really year and a half, it's been hard, not just because of a pandemic, 
but because people treat the church of the living God like it exists for our consumption and our pleasure. The church, this church, the church of the living God exists because we want to exalt Jesus Christ to our community and our sphere of influence. And being a leader comes with a very high responsibility and warning from our God that having the type of responsibility of shepherding and caring and leading others within the flock means that we will be judged more harshly. And if that's true, if I believe what God says in His Word, I cannot be prideful in my leading because I don't have the wisdom to know what's in a person's heart or what will happen tomorrow. But I, like all of us, ought to be dependent upon the God who does know the human heart and is already in tomorrow. Verse 22. And one more thing, Paul says, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Paul ends with a request of hospitality from Philemon, specifically for Paul, who has been in chains. He trusts that the prayers that Philemon and others have had to have Paul be released from prison would be awarded. And spoiler, they were. You can read ahead. This letter, this book of the Bible, Philemon, is about the gospel in action which creates a, and if you're taking a note, here's a good one, it creates a what can I do for others because of what Christ has done for me? What can I do for others because of what Christ has done for me type of attitude? And that puts on display the lordship of Jesus Christ. We as a church don't want to treat the gospel as the front door to our Christian life, where we just preach it, and then you walk down an aisle, and you say you got saved, and then nothing changes. See, The gospel is not the front door of our Christian life. The gospel is our Christian life. We don't want to treat the gospel message like a saying or a motto that we use at the end of a sermon. It is so much more than that. Like we said at the beginning of this year, our vision this year is that we are recalibrating our emphasis of the redeeming work of God through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus for sinners like us, which means for our tech ministry to our community groups that are starting up soon, our children's ministry that are serving the children in this place, to our outreach, to our staff meetings, to our one-on-one and small group discipleship relationships. All of these are through the lens and the filter of the gospel of grace, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to make a way so that we can get what Jesus deserves because he willingly took what we deserve on the cross. We don't want a little bit of the gospel. We don't want to treat the gospel like an additive. We don't want the gospel to only be preached on a holiday. Yay, Labor Day, Jesus! The gospel is everything because the gospel is what Jesus has done so that we could be made righteous. So let me end with this quote from one of my favorite theologians and professors. D.A. Carson says it this way. I'd like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved. 
wow. But not so much that I find my ambitions directed or my giving too greatly enlarged. I'd like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. I'm going to let that sit. This almost sarcastic commentary on how many treat the gospel is to point out that $3 worth of the gospel is impossible biblically. Even though more and more people in culture today subscribe to this type of gospel than the great exchange, but why? Because if God's grace means you didn't do anything to deserve Jesus, and you are brought into the kingdom through His work, not your own, then there's no ceiling to what Jesus may ask of you if you're truly following Him. So I pray as a community, that we would be about the gospel of grace. A lot of us run, and yet God pulls and draws us back to Him because we remember when we first loved Him. We remember what about the gospel first wooed us to Him. I pray that we would lean into the Holy Spirit's work of humbling us and living at peace with one another because we are the family of God.